the, the pigs that we just saw in the kitchen being cooked are about six months. So those are specific, very specific pigs. They are uh, sow's milk only pigs. So they've not had any feed or grain or anything like that in their system at all. Milk only, which is what makes the meat so tender when you bite into those. Um, they are a, they're U.S. bred pigs. They're not organic or anything like that, but the guy who raises them uh, does, does it in a very natural and organic way. So in the U.S., a lot of misconception is uh, if it says organic, it must be organic. Uh, no, and you don't need to be fully USDA certified to be organic. Uh, as long as the way that it's raised is natural, you don't use uh, hormones or injections or antibiotics or anything else like that, uh, then they can't, they, a lot of people will consider those organic because they're natural. Um, and so these pigs are in one of its most natural states, uh, raised just around six months. They only have, they've only had head milk, and by the time they're done cooking, they're about eight to 10 pounds. So when we get them, they're around 12 to 15. Sometimes the bigger ones might run 16 or 18. Um, there was a question, a really good question earlier in the kitchen, asking me, if there are seasonalities in uh, pigs. And there's actually seasonality in everything we eat. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, uh, but as purveyors of food for you, and because we're in America and we have space, um, frozen might sound bad to a lot of people, but frozen fresh is actually not as bad as people think. And so while uh, a lot of you were in the kitchen, you may not have noticed. You thought it was a wall behind you. That's actually our coolers and freezers. So we have two sets of coolers and two sets of freezers. One for uh, the kitchen side where they do all the stir fries, and one for the barbecue side where we have to store all of those huge cakes, all of those ducks, all the chicken, and all the pork that we that we uh, order or take off of the pigs themselves. And so there is a seasonality to pigs and to chickens. Uh, usually in the fall and spring, they're actually better. Uh, in the summer, they tend to be a little leaner. Um, in the winter, they're, they're, also, they're also okay, but usually in the summer is where they tend to be the leanest. And so uh, because we ship from New Jersey for these little pigs, uh, I will hold off. We don't stop shipments, uh, but we order less. So I'm more likely to hoard the other seven or eight, nine months of the year versus the three in the summer. One, because we know the pigs are not as good, and two, because in terms of shipping, they come to us vacuum packed frozen. I don't want them to frosting on the way here when it's 100 degrees out. Even if the truck is insulated, uh, you know, your risk is a little greater than you want to take it. What about the ducks and seasonality? Uh, the ducks, unfortunately, do have a seasonality, but because we take so many in quantity, um, our duck farmer has known to keep a stash in the freezer 
in case they don't make our demand. <laughs> and so almost always they've, made, they've been able to meet our demand. And they're, they're very good. Uh, actually, they used to be a five-generation farm. About two years ago, they got bought out by another family. And so the original uh, root family that was uh, running it is now retired. Uh, and so we have a different a different family running running uh, Are they Chinese family? No, they're uh, from Pennsylvania. Pretty sure they're Jewish. But close enough. You know. <laughs> I have one question on this side. How long do we pre cook the ducks before they're served? Or before we cook them? Okay. So I'm gonna run through the duck process really quick because I see to my left here is uh, your dinner getting ready to be served. Uh, tonight's first course is actually going to be barbecue duck. That's what's on the menu. Also known as hay tar duck because this duck is actually spatchcocked uh, when we cook it. So we spatchcock it, lay it flat, take out the really bony parts to lay it flat, and then it's actually hooked onto a U-fork and hung in the oven to cook. Uh, the process after that is very similar to making roast duck. You uh, do have to glaze the skin. You season it differently. Uh, it doesn't get the air pumped in because it's now flat. Um, but one of the uh, highlights about this duck is because it's, because it's flat, uh, when they're cooking it, most of the oils drip out and so it's not as greasy as roast duck is. So, for those of you who like less greasy duck, this is actually a very good alternative. It has a very similar uh, uh, burnt flavor that you would get from char because it is cooked on an open flame. But it is more sweet uh, compared to the roast duck. So it's a little less juicy because it's been cooked flat, but it's a lot less greasy. Uh, we use a bean paste sauce to cook it. We use the same uh, rice, uh, sorry, vinegar, and, uh, and uh, maltose solution to, to glaze the skin. We don't have any additives in the solution when we're glazing the skin. So you may notice that our ducks are a little bit more mahogany brown than what you might see in Chinatown Chicago or Chinatown New York. Some places are a little bit better. And so one of the reasons is we don't add food coloring and we don't add additives when we're making the glaze for the ducks. Uh, so that is one uh, version of duck that we're having tonight. Second version, of course, is our roast duck. Um, roast duck is roasted whole. Uh, and a lot of times you hear the process of how we brine the inside with our bean paste and garlic sauce, our dry rub, which is five spice sugar, salt, and MSG. Uh, and then they sew it up and then they pump it with air, blanch it in hot water to close off the pores, clean off the skin, and then they dunk into the uh, sugar vinegar solution to glaze it. And then those ducks are hung out, um, just like the barbecue ducks, they, they do have to be hung out to dry. The skin needs to dry for a minimum of eight to 10 hours so that the moisture is wicked off the, the surface layer of the skin and just under the surface layer of the skin. Um, that makes a big difference because when we cook it, if you don't do it and there's moisture in the duck skin itself, you're going to get uh, either a mushy duck or you're going to get an ugly duck or both. Because the oils in the water are going to react while they're cooking and you get uh, char, bad tasting. So one of the, uh, 
The course that they actually just put on the table is the cold, what we call cold water. Um, a lot of people have a misconception that Chinese barbecue, Hong Kong barbecue, is all cooked hot meats. Actually, it's not. So, uh, depending on where you eat it, you can have a cold cut platter, which is what's in front of you. This is a more simple version of our cold, of the cold cut platter that you might find in Hong Kong or in, at a banquet in New York or San Francisco. Uh, tonight's cold cut platter is a marinated ham hocks, brisket, and squid. And then in the center are actually pickles. I can't see what the pickles are, but if he have, was smart, there should be pickled cucumbers, pickled daikon, and pickled watermelon rinds. The watermelon rinds are a whim from the summer. <laughs> we just added that and figured you guys might enjoy some variety. Um, but this is very typical of the things that you might find on a cold platter when having Chinese barbecue. And one of the reasons why I introduced this, a lot of people don't know about it. Um, a lot of people know, oh, I'll have a barbecue combination and that's it. Uh, this is actually the original form. A lot of banquets will have these items and they're laid out very beautifully. Some of them are actually, com there are actually competitions in Hong Kong to see who could lay out the most elegant piece of artwork made from cold cuts. Uh, and then they, they judge it based on uh, how pretty it looks, how the cuts are made, and then the flavor of the actual items that are on the cold cut platter. Uh, this is usually where you might find um, jellyfish. Um, some people also put barbecue pork on there, also put uh, soy sauce chicken on there, but since we're doing those separately tonight, um, we didn't put them on the cold cup platter. For the ham hocks and the brisket, they should be setting down some red vinegar for you to use, so use that as a dipping sauce. Uh, for the squid, they should have a plate of poison sauce on the table and you can use that as the, the, the dipping sauce. For the squid? For the squid, for the squid use poison sauce. Wow. Yes. For the meat, use, there should be a plate of red vinegar in a moment that they'll set down. Another version of the duck you're having tonight is a little bit more light skin compared to the barbecue duck and the roast duck, and that is our marinated duck. This is also correct. Uh, that is getting set on the table right now. The marinated duck is actually duck steamed in a light soy sauce, and that's why it does not have a crispy skin, but because it's steamed in the light soy, we season our light soy with uh, five spices and uh, herbs, uh, sorry, uh, rather uh, five spices in there, and so it has a very subtle uh, spice flavor to it. This is more, um, this is more of a Taozo style uh, dish. So different regions of uh, Guangdong province has different types of barbecue items and this falls under the, one of the purviews. So this marinated duck is actually good with the red vinegar also. And then the uh, greens are actually just the steamed Chinese broccoli with oyster sauce. Very typically found in street food vendors that sell barbecue. Chinese barbecue, uh, Hong Kong barbecue rather, in Hong Kong can be found everywhere, uh, whether you're in a five-star hotel or on the street. Uh, personally, I like eating the stuff on the street better than in the hotels. <laughs> They're much more interesting and we're more likely to see something that would uh, amaze us. 
but they do. There are there are some hotels that make really good um, barbecue also. So if you are in the area in Hong Kong or in, in New York, don't be afraid to try any of them. This is roast stuff. This is our our most well known roast stuff. And a lot of you might have thought we were having the Beijing duck dinner tonight. Well, Beijing duck dinner in here is actually a fluke. We did not plan on uh, inventing this dish, so to speak. Uh, but one of the secrets that a lot of people don't realize, and it's actually a very open secret with us, is the duck that you eat in the Beijing duck dinner service is actually roast duck. So, not because we don't know the proper way of making Peking duck, but for our sanity and for convenience, we do such a high volume of roast duck and we season everything the same way, uh, whether we make it traditional Peking duck or roast duck, that we just gave up and said, okay, since we make so many of these, we're not gonna bother with the traditional way. And so all these years we've actually cheated and used roast duck. Uh, you guys don't notice. We actually get uh, some Chinese uh, food snobs in here, and they look at it, and they they will tell us um, that that's roast duck you're giving me. That's not Peking duck. And so one um, one of the reasons why a lot of uh, guests like our duck, and I've discovered this over the years, most of the time Midwesterners like heavily seasoned foods. Um, I don't know why that is but the more salt, the better. <laughs> and so, very similar to the Cantonese people, um, we like our, our food well seasoned. One, mostly because it's hot there, and so uh, to replenish what's lost when we work out and sweat and so forth, uh, we like more salt in our food. And so, over the years, we've actually developed this fairly balanced recipe that has just enough flavor in terms of salt but also well seasoned with other uh, spices that you can taste everything so it's not just salty. Uh, traditional peking duck is much much more mild. Um, it's all more of a spice flavor. Um, there's basically no salt uh, in there or they use a very minimal amount of salt and so for that reason when you have peking duck in Beijing uh, it doesn't taste like very much. Uh, also, their nuts tend to be fattier, and so when you bite into it, you're going to get a mouthful of more grease. And a lot of the more modern places in China now are learning that the not just not just the foreign tourists, but their local tourists actually like their food less greasy now, and so have adapted to trying to find ducks that are less greasy. And so slowly but surely, I think the overall trend globally is to eat uh, ducks that, that are less greasy. But uh, in Chicago, we found this 27, 28 years ago that Midwesterners like their salt and they like to have their fat, but they don't want to see it or be able to taste it. So everything has to be marbled in. Um, so one of the reasons our, our duck is so popular is not only is it well seasoned, compared to a lot of other places, our ducks are much, much, much leaner. Um, but you can still taste the richness of it because the fat is better marbled into the meat versus all stuck on the skin.
so you'll find that the skin of our ducks are thinner than what you would find if you ate uh, elsewhere around the country or in Asia. On the table now should be the marinated chicken. Uh, some people also know it as the princess chicken. So this chicken is um, very mild. Uh, there was a question in the kitchen earlier also asking me what was boiling in the big pot next to where my dad was cooking the pig over the charcoal. So in that pot were all the herbs and spices and seasonings that we use to make the marinade for the chicken you're enjoying now. This is a chicken that's usually eaten cold. Uh, we prefer it cold. Uh, it's very subtle. We use five spice. Uh, we use a little bit of a chili. And the main ingredient in there is a rice wine. So, uh, and a shot of uh, rose wine when they're just about finished uh, before service. So this, uh, there should be a ginger sauce on the table. Use the ginger sauce for the marinated chicken. So we had a question here in the front, um, wondering the differences when during service of food, when you go out to eat in an American restaurant, uh, you have an appetizer, you have a soup and salad course, you have your main course, you have dessert, or whatever it is in between. Uh, how come when we're eating in a Chinese restaurant, Especially in here, we're very good at it. We randomly bring you food, even though you ask for egg rolls as an appetizer and it might end up as dessert. In answer to that, the short is, my kitchen has talented people and they don't always keep up. <laughs> no, so a lot of times when you get your egg rolls last, it really is because it's crazy busy and the kitchen hasn't kept up. But in general, Chinese people eat as a family. Uh, we don't eat individually, and so a lot of Americans are used to, I ordered this, this is mine, it's going to sit in front of me. I asked for an appetizer, that's what I want first, and then I'm going to eat my soup or salad or both, and then I have my following courses and it's in front of me. Uh, in Chinese culture, one of the reasons we have a round table for dinner, whether we are at home, or outside at a, at a restaurant uh, is because the round, the circular table fosters community, it fosters conversation, and you're forced to look at not just the person next to you, but you're also forced to look at the person across from you. And we have certain table manners where, especially if there's a lazy Susan, uh, we offer the food that we want to the other person first. And so what you think is randomness is because we share everything that's on the table and so it makes no difference to us when the food arrives. And we don't really eat in courses. They're called, you know, 10 course or 12 course or 6 course meals because those are the number of items on the table. But it doesn't necessarily delineate that you're going to get this item first, that item second, that item fourth, and once you finish that item, they'll clear it away and bring the next one. No, because you're eating communally, every plate is probably going to be a little bit more oversized than what you're used to. And so for a group of 10, you might finish one dish and you might not finish the next dish. And there's always something left for another round. And so we always, we always want to make sure there's enough table on the food or enough food on the table and that 
uh, everyone has enough to eat at least once. And so that is why oftentimes what seems like randomness, uh, especially in here, we are very, we're more family oriented in terms of service. Uh, and we encourage people that come in, especially in big groups, uh, we encourage them to order a bunch of different things and then they share everything. Uh, because it really does foster conversation, foster uh, community within your group. And so that's one of the reasons why there's a difference between how we serve food, Chinese people in general, and how uh, an American restaurant might serve food. And so we like our egg rolls for dessert. So the question up here was, do we fill our plates with everything um, and eat everything all at once? Our, in our family, because we eat, uh, we don't use a plate, we eat out of a bowl, and our rice is in there, so we're very rice-centric. You notice that I didn't really serve rice for you guys tonight, um, but in our family, rice is a staple. Uh, and so there's always a meat, there's always a veggie, there's always a soup, and there's always rice. My parents are not super sticklers. If you're eating at my grandma's house, uh, she might have 12 things on the table, and three of the dishes might be split up because they're the same item. It's to make sure everybody at the table, because at home she has an oval table, not a circular table. And so she needs to make sure that everyone can reach everything. And she's very particular in making sure that her grandkids have enough to eat. Um, and so she is very stickler about how we eat at the table. So we don't dig into the plate of communal food. There's no searching for a piece that we want. Uh, one of the rules is the, the piece you touch is the piece you take. Um, and you don't, you know, oh, I don't like, you pick one up, I don't like this, and you flick it back into the plate. And because your chopsticks are in your mouth. So if you only touch the small piece that you take, you're only contaminating the piece that you're eating. And you're not leaving your spit, so to speak, all over the plate for everyone else. Now, if you're eating at home, that's not such a big deal because you're all family. But Grandma was very, very specific that if we were ever eating out, that shouldn't happen. So she makes sure that she enforces that rule when we're eating at home. So it becomes a habit and we do it when we're in public. Um, for, as, for as far as how much you want to eat, you know, if you think you want two or three pieces of one plate, then you go ahead and you take that, but you make sure to finish it. Otherwise, again, Grandma gets upset. <laughs> our, our house where with my mom, uh, there was more a battle to finish food real fast and then get back to whatever it is we need to, needed to do. So our, my parents, knowing that my grandma had already set those phone rules in place, were not as, uh, not as adamant about making sure that we follow the rules all the time at home. Uh, my mom is not involved directly in the restaurant. We have a sister plant that makes tofu and grows bean sprouts, and we actually hide her there. Uh, mom is very mom, and we're all afraid of her. So the farther away she is from us, the better we feel. <laughs> she's actually not very scary, but when you're a kid and your mom's yelling at you, she's kind of scary. So growing up, we still had that kind of. So the question up here was how we eat with our chopsticks. Um, in the oldest fashion or form, 
Um, most chopsticks have a tapered end and more of a, a bigger end on the top. So when we're holding our chopsticks, we do eat with the smaller tapered end. At home, because we don't use communal chopsticks or public, like, so that would be like the serving spoon in the plate. Uh, because we have 10 people in the house and there are 10 pairs of chopsticks or like two pairs of spares for a guest and then that's it. And so we don't keep like 100 pairs of chopsticks around. We have to wash them. Um, and so we actually could use the thick end of your chopsticks. So the other end of your chopsticks can be used for picking up food if you're getting food for a guest in your home. Now when we're in public, we do use communal chopsticks or we ask for serving spoons. And so we're more than likely, if there are non-family members at the table, to use a communal chopstick or a serving spoon. But if you don't have one, yes, the other end of your chopsticks are useful for that purpose. So the, uh, the item that was just placed, the dark brown, is our soy sauce chicken. So this chicken is steamed in a light soy sauce, in a dark soy sauce, rather. Um, when you guys were in the kitchen, I don't know if you noticed, but there were three pots, three giant pots um, between the ovens and the wok stations. There were three giant pots. So those are the three giant pots that my dad has now put me in charge of on a nightly basis. And I control how much salt we're having tonight. <laughs> so um, the, it's actually the soy sauce. Uh, that makes the soy sauce chicken and the soy sauce that is packaged into the little pumps or on the uh, like the, our rice plates that we serve here with the barbecue items. So if, if you get soy sauce that's slightly saltier than usual, that was me. <laughs> um, one of the other hats are uh, the white soy that the, uh, the marinated duck was steamed in. That's also, uh, I don't control the spices that go in there. Uh, my sister does that, but I do control the overall flavor. So I actually have to season it to make sure there's enough salt content to flavor whatever meat is cooking in there. And then uh, if we have the whole soy sauce, it's not overly salted when we put it onto an item for service. So that's kind of what I do. The last pot is actually our uh, brine. It's our hot brine, and that's what uh, the salt-baked chicken is actually cooked in. So tonight, I skipped the salt-baked chicken because I, I thought the uh, marinated chicken would be more interesting for you guys. And many of you guys have been here before and know about our uh, hot style salt-baked chicken. So that's, that's the last pot that we use to cook uh, the salt-baked chicken. I hope you guys are full, because we still have pigs to go. We're not done yet, we've done duck. Um, we've done pork, or sorry, we've done chicken, and we have to move on to pork in a little bit. Are you guys cleansing your palates with your vegetables? My grandma stresses veggies on the table immensely. So even though knowing I was only going to go all meat tonight, I had to put vegetables on the table because I could hear her in the back of my head going, where are the vegetables? So the question in the front here was, uh, do we get dignitaries? Uh, dining in here and um, I have had the mayor dine in here uh, Mayor Daly dined in the old store uh, Mayor Manuel dines in here every couple of months whenever he's 
in need of a Sunday Jewish dinner. Um, <laughs> uh, Secretary of State just white has dined in here. Um, in terms of people from the Chinese Embassy, I'm not on their radar very much. Uh, one being, I don't have a handle in Chinese politics uh, around town. My my role in politics is to talk to my aldermen here in the 48th Ward uh, to make sure that Argyle Street looks pretty and help make sure that the SSA commission that I sit on as a commissioner has the money from our tax dollars spent back on Argyle Street. Um, and that is about the extent of my politics. Um, everything I do in politics is mostly to make sure that uh, our neighborhood gets what it deserves. And that's about it. So I, I don't see the Chinese council very much. Uh, even now that we've heard the James Beard, we've uh, had a couple of his uh, like kind of assistant people come for dinner with other friends that were mutual between us, but beyond that, no major big wigs from China. Uh, I think mostly because we're American Chinese, and so they kind of don't socialize outside of their crowd. Uh, before I forget, and this process takes a little bit longer to explain, uh, one of the questions from the kitchen was how we process the pigs when they come in, um, so that we can manage to cook it evenly and quickly over the open flames uh, of the either charcoal or the ceramic briquettes. So when we uh, have any of the pigs that come into the building, uh, they're basically whole. Uh, USDA requires that they're slaughtered and so there are no uh, organs in them. So they have to come to us clean. Uh, after that, they can do as the, the slaughterhouse is free to do as they please, and so we get them whole basically, and we break them down. And there's a process where each pig is broken down, where all the major bones are taken out, and then depending on how we're cooking them, certain bones are left in or they're taken out, and then all the meat is actually thinned out so that when you lay the pig flat, in general. Uh, most of the meat is the same uh, thickness, so that no matter how we're cooking it, it will cook evenly uh, over the fire. So we will get. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why, if the pig comes in at 15 or 16 pounds when it's done cooking, it's only 10 pounds. We've actually removed bones, which will remove poundage, and we've removed some of the meat, which will also remove poundage. And then as it's cooking, uh, we do try to reduce the amount of water loss, so to speak. Um, but for these little ones, there's not a whole lot of water in them, so there isn't a lot of loss there. All right, our first plate of pork is coming up. This is the one that uh, Laura had cooked on the ceramic briquettes. This is the not the this is not the open fire coal. This is open fire uh, natural gas and ceramic briquettes. Uh, when we season the pigs here, we actually use a bee paste rub that's made in house, and then a five spice blend with sugar, salt, and a little bit of MSG. A lot of uh, when I say MSG, I do get a lot of people that kind of look at me and go, 
like, isn't that bad for you? Um, MSG in and of itself is not bad for you. If you're allergic to it, then that's different. Then that is bad for you. But if you're not allergic to it, it's kind of the placebo effect. What I find is, uh, especially in a lot of American Chinese places, they almost substitute salt with the MSG. So there's more likely to be MSG in, in more, more MSG than there is salt content. And one way for you to realize uh, whether or not you have too much MSG is if you keep reaching for your water glass, you've been overdosed with MSG. MSG just dries you up because it is a salt. It's like a salt magnified by 10 times. And so you'll find yourself more thirsty if you have too much MSG. Um, and because of that, when you have uh, lack of hydration, then you may get those uh, headaches or you know, double vision or whatever it is. So it may lead up to it, but we have found that not actually not that many people are uh, allergic to MSG. It's, it's a kind of a placebo effect. Um, one of the things, though, that we do use MSG, the reason we use it is it actually enhances the natural flavor of whatever it is you're eating very well. It magnifies it, so you're going to taste it better when used in its proper context. And so if the recipe calls for a full spoon of MSG, we may only use half a, half a spoon. Um, we do try to keep using MSG to a minimum, but that's only because it's psychological for so many of our customers. It's basically a natural state of umami in a crystallized form. This is the little piggy that Laura was cooking on the ceramic briquette. Baby pig. Uh, baby pig is only on the specials menu Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night, and only until sold out. A lot of uh, a lot of there are a lot of people in uh, China and Hong Kong are will eat baby pig in different ways, especially in this more modern uh, culinary world that we're in. Um, but a lot of it stems back from the olden days. Uh, we, being from where we are and how we were trained, would use uh, hoisin sauce. Um, we think that that's actually the best way to taste the pig itself. Uh, if you put any sauce at all. Uh, there are people that will use sugar. And those are usually people that are eating skin only. So whether you're having uh, duck skin only or pork skin only, some people will dip it with sugar. And they say that the sugar crystal, they're actually using uh, crystal sugar. So not that kind of refined sugar that we have. Uh, in China, they have crystallized uh, sugar, crystal, like sugar crystals. And so the flavor and the texture from the sugar crystals makes the skin of whatever it is you're eating, whether it's duck or pork, uh, pop out even more. So it's, it's all a matter of opinion. Uh, I am not a sweet person, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. I would not willingly dip my food in sugar and eat it uh, just plain like that. I, uh, I, I love my chocolate. I'll eat my ice cream, but I don't do full sugar overload on my own. There was one more chicken we missed, and I'm pretty sure my brother has left the building. 
But uh, the, the final chicken item we're having tonight will be the Mike's Fried Chicken. So Mike's Fried Chicken is a version of Chinese fried chicken that he came up with 10 years ago because we were visiting our Grandmaster in Toronto. So traditional uh, Chinese fried chicken is basically uh, chicken prepared very similar uh, to duck. They don't uh, sew it up, they don't pump it with hair. Um, we just season it very lightly with some uh, five spice and salt uh, on the inside. And then what they do is they dump it in the fryer and just let it cook away. Well, when we went out uh, to dinner at a Chinese restaurant, uh, us kids never ate the chicken. We only ever peeled off the skin and we left all the chicken on the plate. Um, that was the one exception my grandma made because she knew the chicken was so dry, she couldn't make herself force us to eat it. Um, so, uh, we never enjoyed Chinese fried chicken as kids. Uh, because of that, my dad would, instead of throwing the chicken in the fryer, actually roast them in the oven. Uh, but we didn't like it that way either because even though the meat was juicy, we were now eating all the meat, but everyone would peel off the skin because it was all rubbery. So it didn't taste that good. Um, my brother, on this trip to uh, Toronto where we were visiting with our grandmaster, he actually looked at both ways of doing it and kind of had a brainstorm on the way back and said, well, what if we only partially cook the chicken in the roaster so that all the juices are sealed into the chicken and we don't lose that when we're frying and then cook it the rest of the way in the fryer. So my dad's very usual style is, okay, go ahead and try it. So he tried it and it works. And it's basically the concept is like cooking steak. You want it at the highest heat, sear the steak, seal in all your juices, and then you just close the lid and let the ambient heat do the work until you get it to the temperature you want. So essentially, that's what my brother's doing. He was doing the first step. He was searing the chicken by putting it in the roaster, in the, in the oven, to roast it so that it's not cooked, but the skin is completely sealed in so that all the juices stay locked in. And then when we are ready to serve it, we throw it in the fryer. The skin is all ready, the juice is inside the meat, so it cooks the chicken through, but the skin is crispy. And so that's, that's how we ended up with this chicken. And instead of calling it Chinese fried chicken, we just decided we're gonna put Mike's name on it because he's really the one that came up with the connection between the two. Is this the pig your dad cooked? This is the pig Mike cooked in the oven. Michael. Mike. So this next plate of pork that's on the table now is the one that was in the oven that Mike was cooking. And you're going to notice that on the skin of this pig, the skin is more smooth. It doesn't have that crackly sesame look to it um, because when we cook it in the stand-up oven, the lack of flame on the skin doesn't bring, doesn't bring out all the moisture and the oils to make the skin crackle and have the, turn it into that sesame look that we get when we are cooking on the open flame. 
Of course, my dad wants to stay with us for last because he took that last pig. <laughs> He's going to keep you guys all hanging. There, there's a question back here of uh, when I started working in the restaurant. Uh, the official age is eight. So I was about eight years old in our old store on uh, Argyle. And uh, uh, by the time I got to my keys, you'd either catch me doing homework next to the register because I was trying to stay awake so I had to stand up, or I'd be flopped over on the, the, the uh, staff uh, dining table and asleep on homework because I couldn't stay awake. Uh, I did. First job I ever got was at Laura Ashley at Northbrook Court. Uh, I wanted to be as far away from the restaurant as I possibly could. Um, I didn't realize that I actually liked this job at the time, but no, actually no, I like the Laura Ashley job. I just, um, I just wouldn't realize that it's so ingrained in me, um, and as far away as I tried to get, I just couldn't. <laughs> no, no, I've, um, I, I think it scared me enough working in our own restaurant that I never wanted to work in somebody else's restaurant, um, which, might have been good for me at some point, but I just never wanted to work in a restaurant, ever. Um, even my first business out of uh, college, my dad encouraged me to build my own business, and so I was uh, importing and exporting stuff from China. And so I would sell like plates and like home decor and things like that, and um, the only thing is that job really taught me how to deal with customs people. Uh, what I have to do to bring in spices for the restaurant. And the bad habit of the moment I sit down in somebody else's restaurant, I flip the plate over and look at where it's made or what it's made of. So I've developed a few bad habits or like a table. I'll like look under the table, see where the table is made or, you know, it was like, just laminate or actual wood. Like I developed all these queer habits because of my original jobs that were not restaurants. I have not been back to China or Hong Kong in uh, how old my daughter? Six. So at least the last five years I have not been. Uh, I really am overdue because every time I go out there I find something else to eat and I haven't been on an eating binge in a while. <laughs> so the question back here was uh, how we ended up with the James Beard Award. <laughs> that, that's actually the question we ask ourselves all the time. How the heck did we end up with the James Beard Award? And the short answer is that. Um, we didn't know we were going to get the James Beard Award. It really was a, like out of left field for us. The day the call came in, I mean, Laura remembers it like you would remember 9-11. Uh, what were you doing, you know, that this thing? And she was telling me, basically, that she had three prank calls, uh, two annoying, obnoxious people that were calling about ridiculous things that we couldn't do. And she was extremely annoyed. Uh, at the edge of, you know, just hanging up on everybody who was going to call on the phone. And then she gets a call from this lovely lady named Victoria, who tells her, yes, we're calling from the James Beard uh, Foundation, and we are calling you to 
let you know that you're going to be honored this year with an America's Classic Award. And she said, oh, so you want us to do the James Beard event this year? No, no, no. We're giving you an award this year. Um, wait, so I don't understand what it is that you need from me. And she said, repeated herself, no, no, no. We're going, we're, you're going to get the James Beard America's Classic Award this year. Okay, you're not funny now. <laughs> and so that was her conversation. And then uh, she said, okay, I'm sorry. I've just had a lot of weird calls today. Thanks the woman profusely. And the, the nice lady named Victoria said, uh, do you have an email that I can send information to? And we'll let you know as soon as we have more details. And she said, okay. And so she blurted out her email to her and said, my sister's name is Kelly. She's the one you need to talk to. And they hung up. And I come in and she tells me, come here. I said, okay. She's all mysterious. And she's like, I can see on her face that she's got that panicky, nervous look. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I got a call today from the James Beard Foundation. And I said, oh, okay, they want us to do their chef's night out this year? No. They want to give us the America's Classics Award. And we both looked at each other like... <laughs> um, we seriously thought that we were getting cranked. And so all weekend, we waited for the email to confirm that we weren't crazy. And I kept updating her because I was checking my email like five times a day. And Kathy can attest, uh, I only check my email like one time a day and at odd times. Uh, so that weekend we were checking our email five times a day and I kept texting her, nothing yet, haven't gotten anything, nope, nada, she'll go. Get the first thing in the morning, you check an email, did we get anything? Nope, nope, nothing yet. Um, so we finally got an email. Uh, and then my dad, we told our dad, and he started telling the staff, and they started asking us questions. And because we were told, please don't say anything, we haven't made an official announcement, we said, okay. So I kind of told the staff, oh no, dad's just making a comparison. He's not really whatever, it's not true. Until the night before the announcement, I said, I finally said, okay, I was, I've been lying this whole time, they told me not to say anything, so. It's true. And they're like, oh, we don't understand what the award is. And I said, it's only the biggest award a restaurant could ever get in its entirety. Um, and so they were like, oh, okay. We're impressed, kind of. So no one really understood the enormity of, of the award. And then once the announcement was made in January, I have had three Saturdays since then that it's been quiet. The Saturday before July 4th, because everybody was out of town. Uh, a Saturday at the end of August, because everyone was going back to college, or going off to school, or whatever it was. And this past Saturday, because it was Rosh Hashanah, and all of our Jewish people had to be at Temple. So, uh, in terms of business, it has really been a lot crazier since the announcement of the award, um, and receiving it, obviously. And the biggest, uh, the biggest moment for Laura and myself and Mike was explaining to our dad 
the enormity of this award. And he literally sat there for 20 minutes. And when we saw his eyes couldn't get any bigger and his jaws couldn't drop any lower, oh. okay. uh, he just his eyes just got bigger and his jaws just dropped lower um, because he was really starting to understand the enormity of it. And he called his teachers, he called his friends, everybody he could get a hold of in China. And they're all kind of, oh, congratulations. Um, you got an award, that's cool. And then when they started finding out on national news in Hong Kong and China, suddenly they were like, holy shit, you just put Hong Kong with And uh, my dad said, yes I did. The boats. Uh, the boats are a decoration because we were we didn't want a white wall. Uh, many of you are regulars. Not all of you may know that my our entire family are full of fishermen. My dad especially loves to fish, hence the marlin and the muskie and the largemouth bass and the northern pike or what, walleye pike or whatever it is that we have in the front. Um, and so this uh, fishing thing that we have, uh, we own a uh, fishing house in Fremont, Wisconsin. And uh, my mom's brother jumped on the bandwagon and started loving uh, fishing also and so bought the house down the street from where we were. Uh, and the gentleman that owned the house prior to him was a woodworker and during the negotiations of trying to help my uncle buy his house, my mom said, I want those three boats. Scam them off the owner. I want the three boats. And so during the negotiations, uh, I called, uh, the man's name was Jeff, I told Jeff, listen, come on, let's work something out. My uncle really wants the house. But my mom really wants the boat. Can you do anything for me? And so when we closed on my uncle's house, he gave my mom the three boats that were in his house. And so after hanging in their fishing house for about two or three years, uh, when we needed decorations, my dad went to the house in Fremont and stole the boats off the wall without my mom's knowledge and put them up. So my mom came in after work one day and said, why are my boats here? And we said, Daddy said you could, we could have them. And she looks at him with daggers in her eyes and said, you need to find Jeff and have him build me three more new boats. Uh, luckily, their marriage has survived. Uh, but my mom is still out three boats. The boats are still here, um, but the house in Fremont does not have three more boats. That last plate of pork that was just served is the pork that Dad cooked on the cold, open flame coal. So I think he did that on purpose. He certainly wanted to save the best for last. Uh, it has all the trimmings of sesame skin that you guys were looking for and that natural char flavor that was lacking in the other two. Introducing the family. 
see if I can find them. Uh, Michael, you guys, some of you guys met earlier. He was uh, part number one in the white shirt cooking the, in the ovens. Laura, are you still in the building? And my dad, close out. We're gonna, we're gonna find the rest of the family. So the children have left for the evening. Um, my mom has run out the door as fast as she can because she knows that I have a tendency to introduce her uh, versus my dad because most people know him, they don't know her. And they're always asking, is that your mom? Yes. Um, so mom has actually already left. I know that for sure. I, I see dad in the front. So this is Laura, our executive chef in the restaurant. I am, well, mentally or actually, because I'm only about three years old mentally. Yes, that's right. I do have one more plate to serve you guys. Hope you're not all full yet. I missed my favorite food. Yes, I missed my favorite food. Okay, so I think we'll have one, my favorite food, and then we'll make Dad come over, and then I will tell you all about my father and how our restaurant came to be. Um, so, one of the things about me is obviously I've worked in restaurants since I was a little kid. Um, my dad opened his first restaurant because of me. Uh, his boss wouldn't give him any time off. Basically fired him thinking he would come back to work after a couple of days of taking care of his wife and his new baby. Um, and instead of that, he actually called his friends and um, they pulled money together and then went and opened their own restaurant. So I actually learned to walk in a restaurant. Uh, one of my first foods was barbecue pork. Uh, one of the first things that, that family Chinese people ever feed their kids is barbecue pork, because it's actually cheaper and easier to eat than roast pork, because roast pork has that crunchy skin, and they don't want to damage uh, baby mouths because they don't have teeth. So barbecue pork, because if you pick a good fatty piece, um, it's soft. And so I grew up eating barbecue pork. One of my favorite things is barbecue pork. And so if you ask me what I eat when I'm in Hong Kong, I will tell you. Um, I will look at a piece of barbecue pork and decide if I want to eat it or not. Um, as of late, it's been more not than yes, because I've also discovered that Hong Kong in general, they don't understand marbling of fat. And so you're gonna get a piece of barbecue pork that's got a chunk of fat on the end, a piece of meat in the middle, and then another chunk of fat on the other side. Which Hong Kongers love, but I like my marbled meat. And when you have marbled meat barbecue pork, it's only the best piece of meat on the planet. Uh, barbecue pork is about to be served and you all can meet my dad, Eric, now. My dad is one of those people you hear about, only ever hear about. Um, he's a refugee from China. Uh, he grew up in 1950, just after Mao Zedong came into power. Uh, my great-grandfather was extremely rich uh, in terms of land because we were landowners 
uh, we had tenants on the farm, and so he would rent the land out, uh, collect rents from that, and then harvest uh, whatever crops were grown, and then sell those. So we were farmers, but we were land-owning farmers. Um, and so we also knew livestock and trade and things like that. Uh, Guangdong, China, so a southern province of China, Guangdong. Um, when my father was born, for his one month, 30 day birthday party, uh, because it's a big deal to survive the first 30 days uh, back then. So he had a three day, 24 hours, like it ran the entire three days, 24 hours. So for three days straight, all you had to do was drop off a gift, whatever amount you wanted, drop it off at the front door, you come in and you sat down and you ate until you got full, and then you left. So three days, because he was a son, um, he And so that's how rich they were. Uh, they had a party for three days, day and night, until everybody was well fed and decided they were going home. Um, after, Night, uh, let's see, he was probably about three when Mao Zedong decided uh, all landowners were evil. And so uh, all of our family's lands were confiscated. My grandfather was chucked in jail. Uh, my great-grandfather, rather. Um, and then because he's the son of a landowner, my grandfather was also uh, considered lower class because uh, of being a landowner and um, he had uh, he got married he had his kids and my dad being the eldest son they would talk and uh, my grandfather would teach him you know this is how you do trade this is how you run a business and he was you know 8 10 12 15 16 years old and he followed my grandfather around because he couldn't go to school uh, after middle school he had no hopes of going to high school, zero of, even less of going to college because of the landowner class. And so as he grew older, he just basically um, learned what he could from my grandfather. And then once the Cultural Revolution started, he was sent to labor camp. In um, labor camp, he was a skinny munchkin, and so instead of being forced to do hard labor because they're looking at him he's going to die you know we'll kill him if he does hard labor um he did stuff like woodworking teaching kids um, and because he had experiences in the city with my grandfather he was able to control these very rowdy multi-aged kids of the rural country because he had external knowledge he had city knowledge these kids were all farmers kids and so had never seen a pen or didn't know what an airplane was and thought like it was, you must be rich to own a bicycle. And so these were all things that my dad knew and so he could teach them. And so he did that for three or four years and while he was in labor camp, um, he decided he was going to escape from China and he planned his route, gathered his supplies and made it maybe a quarter of the way and then got busted. <laughs> and uh, he got thrown in jail. Uh, luckily for him, my grandma's family was not all powerful, but powerful enough. 
and so his uncles protected him, or his great uncles or somebody protected him. Uh, and in jail, he met one of his best friends, who uh, was one of our ended up one of our partners at the old store. And so Uncle Fred and he became best friends. They, they uh, met in jail. And uh, my dad realized, well, he's got money, and I've got enough knowledge to get us out of here. Uh, so they teamed up because they needed money to buy food, uh, which his friend had. But his friend didn't know how to get around because he wasn't from there. He was from the city, no clue how to get around the country. And my dad had experience in both. And so together they plotted yet again. And this time they were much more successful. And uh, both of them at some point during the night when they escaped managed to enter the ocean off of the uh, coast of near a village where they, where they were at, at labor camp. And so they got separated during the process. He had no idea where his friends were. And along the way, they had met a few more people. And so everybody was separated. They had no idea who was going to go where. And he was literally at the edge of the beach, like kind of in a cliffish area. And he's hiding behind a rock, and he hears these dogs barking. And basically, he's just, damn it, I'm going to get busted again. And um, literally, the dog is probably the distance of where I'm standing to the center table. And he can hear the soldiers calling the dogs, telling them to stay. And he's just, oh man, I'm going to get busted. This is it. You know, my dad's going to end up in jail because of me, uh, because this is his second offense. And it started raining. Uh, it just started pouring lightning, thunderstorm. And so, the soldiers, they didn't have hair dryers back then, and so they didn't want to be all wet in the rain, they didn't want to get sick, and so they figured he was pretty cornered, he wasn't going anywhere. So they called the dogs off and went back to the barracks. He took that opportunity to jump in the water. And he started swimming, and he saw some uh, boats in the channel where he was, but he didn't know if they were China Chinese boats or Hong Kong Chinese boats. So he didn't want to risk it. So he swam all the way out of the channel and back in. And it took him about eight hours. And uh, he was the last one to arrive on the island uh, of one of the Hong Kong islands. His friend thought he was dead. I, he seriously thought he either got busted or he died because he took so long. But they found each other the next morning and then um, they ended up going, because uh, for refugees in China, they have a process. So they tell them, okay, uh, we're going to take you to go get an ID. And when they go to get their documentation, they are designated as refugees and you have an option. Uh, Uncle Fred, his father lived in Hong Kong, so he optioned to get a Hong Kong ID and stay in Hong Kong. Some of the other people also did, took the same option. But there were a few that could option. We could either travel to Australia, Europe, or the US. And so Dad decided he's going to America. He wanted to live the American dream. Uh, and so he applied for a visa on refugee papers to come to the United States. Uh, so 72, he ended up in Hong Kong. 76, uh, they told him, you're getting a visa. 
and uh, the woman that was helping him with processing his papers asked him, are you married? No. Do you have a girlfriend? No. Why do you ask? Well, I'm just giving you a piece of good advice. If you're not married now and you have a girlfriend, marry her now. If you don't have a girlfriend, find somebody and marry her now. Because it's cheaper for you to leave together than it is for you to leave now, make money, come back, spend all your money marrying the girl, and then go back and then you guys have to make money all over again. And my dad said, that is a good piece of advice. Are you married? And the woman chuckled and said, if I wanted to leave for anywhere in the world, especially the US, I don't have to get married to do it. I, I, I work for the embassy, they can get me out of here. But you should go home and talk to your family and find out if there's a nice girl you can marry. He goes home and talks to his uncle and his uncle says, now that you mention it, remember that lady that lived next door with eight kids? She's got a couple of eligible daughters. I'm pretty sure we can work out a deal. And so, <laughs> We always joke that my parents were on a three-day deal. Uh, first date was to meet, second date was for him to say, are we getting married or not? And the third date was their wedding. Um, I think my mom has now relented and said there were a couple more dates in between. Uh, but she never got flowers, which she denies because she brought her flowers and they got married. And she said that was his account. And so now after 42 years of marriage, they're uh, still together. They bicker like my grandparents. So the more we look at them and our grandparents, the more we see what they're going to become. In the fear that we will turn into that, which we probably will. And uh, four kids later, and a couple of restaurants in between, we are here. Um, so when they got to New York, they actually worked for somebody for a while. And then they had me. Um, and then they opened the first restaurant. Had partners in there. That didn't work out because some of the partners were grumbly. And so when you're not all on the same page, it doesn't work. And then he opened his first sunwalk at 77 Mulberry Street. Um, that was the original incarnation of this restaurant. Um, the restaurant that's now in 77 Mulberry Street is a Buddhist vegetarian restaurant. We were in New York last year for a friend's wedding. And so we went and visited the old restaurant and so we know what's in there now. Um, he came up to Chicago because some friends told him. He actually searched in Detroit and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, didn't like any of those settings, and someone told him, come try Chicago. He ended up in Chinatown. Uh, Chinatown didn't appeal to him because it was the same vibe as New York, which is what he was trying to get away from. It was all about who could be the cheapest with zero thoughts of quality, and that thing was, well, I make quality food, why am I fighting with them for a piece of the pie? Um, and so, someone told him, come up to our guy, and that's what happened in the Here. This way? Um, funny story for our guy is, we uh, wouldn't have bought the original building that we are in, if it weren't for Han Kee. <laughs> uh, Han Kee is the restaurant down the street on Argyle that everyone says is our competition. Actually, they were here first. We're their competition. Um, 
the uh, the original owner of Honky was not well. He was just a crotchety old man. That's how I like to put it. Um, and my dad is kind of. Oh, you want to see this? Sure. Oh, you want to learn about that? Come on in. And um, my dad thought, well, you know, maybe I, you know, I, I, I could see his kitchen and like give him a couple of pointers. You know, we could not collude, but at least exchange cooking tips and ideas. Uh, the old man basically told him to, if you're done eating, pay, shut up, and get out. My mom was so offended. How do people live around here? That just would not happen in New York. And my dad said, let's go. Where are we going? To buy the building. He's like, are you crazy? These people here are nuts. No. If, if that was the owner and he can be that crotchety, there's business to be had here. Let's go. <laughs> so with my, my little mice, with Mike in their arms, they ran back up the street and told uh, Mr. Sharoma, your building's for sale, right? Tell me how much. I'm buying it now. And so we ended up buying the building on our dot. That's how we started. Um, in 08 was when Laura was almost so mainly done with school. And um, I was done. I'd been doing that little import-export business for a while. Starting to get a little bored. And Mike was home from the Army. And my dad started his rounds of persuasion and he's really good at this we didn't figure out how swindled we were until like five years in when we couldn't get out <laughs> not that it was a bad thing but he really he really pointed out all the necessities and all the benefits of having our own place and the, the need to be a family um, and if, if we learn nothing else from him even if we don't learn how to cook from him uh, my dad is really a family man every year we would take a vacation and this is the reason we are closed every year after the 4th of July um, based on his own experiences and because when my grandfather was still alive told him Listen, son, um, you didn't have the opportunity to have an education. You're in America now. As much money as you make, use the money and invest it in your children. It doesn't matter if they're boys or girls. If they are smart or they show even the slightest bit of being a little bit smart, uh, send them to school. Let them go to college. Don't deny them just because they're girls. Um, don't deny them just because you think they won't make it. And so in addition to trying to get us into the best schools, in the best neighborhoods that he could afford, every year he would close down the restaurant and take us on a vacation. Uh, even if it was a short trip to like Star Rock to go on a fishing day or to go to Wisconsin for a couple of days because he had to fix something in the restaurant, he would take a break and we would do things together as a family. And to this day, we still do this. And so every year in the summer, uh, you'll come knock on the door and nobody's home because after July 4th, we go on a break. And we take, now we take our kids, he used to take us, 
now we take our kids with us, whether it's my favorite Disney World, um, you know, Laura's plotting to take her kids someday to Hawaii. Uh, last summer, not, this, not the one that we just had, but the 2017 summer, the entire clan, we all went out to Alaska. Um, and those are the things and experiences that the kids won't have if our parents pass away. And so while they're mobile, they want to be able to spend as much time with their grandkids as they can and expose them to as many experiences as they can. And so he is the ultimate definition of family now. question first. So the second question here was, do we air dry the uh, ducks in our Beijing duck dinners and are they air dried inside or outside of the toy? So the short answer is every duck that we make, regardless of the type of duck, is air dried. Every duck is at minimum air dried for four to six hours, but uh, it will depend on the weather. The humidity, the temperature, the my brother's temperament, my temperament. It can depend on a bunch of different things. And so really, uh, it is outside for a minimum of four, usually it's six. And then we put everything back in the cooler so, so that it'll cool down because we're actually leaving for the evening, so we can't leave anything out overnight anyway. And so they go into the refrigerator and they dry more in the cooler overnight. So that is the short answer. All the ducks follow the same process. Uh, the first question that Edgar asked was, where did I graduate from? I am a DePaul alumni twice over, undergraduate and graduate school from DePaul. Now, doesn't Kelly have the personality and temperament to be on radio? You've been talking for what, the last hour and a half? You get bored? Nobody can tell. Nobody can tell. Well, anyway, this was Kelly's idea. Um, I visited her in April when they were getting their um, James Beard Award, the award that you just cannot politics for. You cannot ask for. It's totally mad for heaven. You can't buy it. You can't bribe it. You can't steal it. Uh, you can't government it. There's no. It just happens. Like, literally, just happened. And we're talking about like a million restaurants in this great big here. We're not just talking Chicago, we're talking Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, the entire state, uh, Iowa, Missouri, um, everything kind of above the north of the belt, the, the south, north and south belt, so to speak. And then in the middle, not uh, Rocky Mountains and not Appalachian Mountains, essentially. So it really is something that falls from the sky. But, but anyway, it was Kelly's idea, and because she's really, really busy, it took us, what, three months to settle on a date, and then trying to figure out what to do for price of menu. If I didn't bump into her at a grocery store, like two weeks ago, that's when everything was finalized. Price and everything. So, and by the way, I would like to say, at this location, I was customer number one. Yeah. 
because I walked in here about 9.45 at night. They had just gotten their permit so they could open in the morning. And I immediately whipped out five bucks. I said, give me something. Thank you guys had a good experience tonight.